This is a recording of Mr. Harold Penrose on January 29th, 1983. When did you actually come in? Did you, when Captain Keeps had his accident, did you, did, did you come in after him to replace him? No. Uh, originally, 1925, as a, a sandwich course student from London University. Really? And in the previous year, I'd been at Hanley Pages, where I worked on aerodynamics. And then in 1926, it was a general shops experience, after which uh, there was another six months uh, for finals at uh, college. Then, really, by almost by accident, I came to Westland. I'd been offered a job at Farnborough, on the uh, aerodynamic side, but um, as with all government uh, offices, they keep you waiting endlessly for this final affirmative. And I think my old man was getting a, a bit anxious about it all, and I happened to have met uh, Davenport, the chief designer, as a lecturer in London, and he said, oh, why not apply to Westland? So I duly sent uh, copies of my very poor drawing standard, uh, and uh, they took me on to work with Hill on Taylor's aircraft. When did you learn to fly? Well, I, I flew in the following year, joined the uh, RAF Reserve of Officers, and uh, had ab initio training at Filton. Though I had flown much earlier as a passenger, and very brief duel, I first flew in 19, end of 1919 with uh, Alan Cobham other flights with um, Avros, and also with a prototype Moth. then decided that, uh, well, I wanted all along to be AA pilots. And from the time I joined Westland, in fact, from the, t uh, the previous year when I was a student there, I flew as observer to the um, chief pilot Openshaw, Lawrence Openshaw. So, uh, having learned to fly, uh, I rather cheekily sort of shot the place up on my uh, towards the end of my training when I converted to uh, the service type, a Bristol fighter, and at that Keep, who had crashed uh, a couple of years earlier, uh, let me fly the Widgeons, <coughs> the uh, little light aeroplane Widgeon, uh, which by that time I was. Uh, actually making myself, I built the first one as my uh, initial works experience and uh, was made manager of the civil aircraft department. It must be a tremendous gap though from, from sort of uh, learning to fly and then becoming a test pilot with an analytical approach to aviation. Well, uh, the, the approach of course was ingrained from the um, aeronautical college course a couple of the aer actual aerodynamics experience in uh, the wind tunnel, but it was not until 1931 that I became uh, chief pilot, by which time I'd flown Wapitis and uh, one or two other of the Western machines. And uh, it, it so happened that uh, on my return from demonstrating in South America with a Wapiti, that uh, Paget, who 
by then was Chief Pilot, uh, Openshaw having been killed in a racing meeting. And uh, to my great surprise, they said that we'd like you to carry on. Was the, the Widgeon um, Westland's first successful aeroplane in the sense that it, it was mass-produced? Well, the, the whole of the uh, real genesis of uh, Westland was the de Havilland 9A, mm -hmm. which they had to design themselves on the basis of the DH-9, the dimensions were increased. It was then restressed as a much heavier, more powerful aeroplane. And uh, there was very extensive production of that. And uh, during my uh, early years at Westland, there was a competition for a development of it, a general purpose machine, using as many components of the 9A as possible. And uh, that became the Wapiti with a special capacious fuselage. And that went into very considerable production. The civil side was uh, uh, quite small. I don't think that I built more than 30 uh, machines comprising widgeons and a machine called the Westland Fall, which became the Westland Wessex which was a three-engine machine. Mm. What um, qualities made the, the DH-9 and then the Wapiti uh, so successful? I mean, could you tell when you flew it that it, it was a machine that worked, that, you know, fulfilled its requirements very well and so on? Well, um, it, initially during the World War One, it was a, a day bomber, really, and accepted because it um, carried a greater load than the Bristol fighter. Um, it was proportionately heavier on uh, controls as well as weight, and uh, by cramming in still more power uh, with the uh, Bristol Jupiter, you got that extra piece of performance again, and uh, it was, as it were, modernized by fitting handy page slats, which made it safer and uh, a slightly higher lift coefficient for landing, so it coped with a, a great all-up weight. The, our chief designer's uh, motto was quite a good one, uh, evolution not revolution. So increase, it became increasingly heavy, with uh, able to carry more and more load as the power was stepped up. The real change was from the water-cooled Liberty engine to one of the Bristol radial engines and then the evolutionary sequence of uh, engines. And when it was um, modified or even redesigned for this Everest expedition, presumably it was the engines that had the most development put to them, was it? Well, the, the Everest machine uh, was an experimental machine rather similar to the Wapiti, intended as a light torpedo carrier. It was an early uh, development of a metal structured uh, wing and fuselage. It, it, had a, it was rather cleaner than the uh, Wapiti, and with a supercharged engine, um, was certainly capable of, of 31,000 feet. Though we lightened the machine very considerably, and in the same way the, the uh, Wapiti was able to emulate it, uh, with slightly less um, ceiling, but uh, with everything stripped out. Was that the highest that anyone had ever flown at that time? No. It wasn't that. No, no Ewins had, had uh, just achieved the world's height record. Mm. 
I'd have to check the figure, 41,000 feet or about that. That was it was. Using a Vickers machine of, of very light wing loading, but with a special uh, supercharged engine. And it was the same uh, engine which we used uh, for the Everest machine. I really forget whether it was Jupiter S, I'm almost certain it was. Not a Pegasus, a Jupiter, yeah. And at that altitude, were you experiencing, um, for the first time, the, the limits of altitude in the sense that you had to handle the machine very carefully and do very gentle turns and this sort of thing? Oh, oh yes. Um, very few uh, pilots had flown even as high as 30,000 feet in those days. Not all aeroplanes were equipped with oxygen gear. And uh, I think there, there was a, an operational limit usually of 17,000 feet. So it was um, certainly a new, a new experience. One had to take into account problems that had never been uh, thought of before, such as the differential expansion uh, between steel and duralumin, uh, steel cables in particular, and the duralumin fuselage. So one had to incorporate um, spring boxes uh, to allow for the uh, uh, relative difference between the two. Oil cooling problems, there were electrics to consider. Farnborough played a, a very large part with um, C.B. Gorman, C.B. is S-I-E-B-E, -E, mm -hmm. uh, in developing a special gear for, for the flight. Well, you were pressurised then, were you? No, 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 oxygen gear. Just the oxygen. Mm, mm. In the same way, an electrically heated suit, gloves, goggles were devised for it. And all this contributed to the later, high, higher altitude uh, service machines. The equipment obviously could be used in any type of aeroplane afterwards. Well, the Bristol machine that, that set the record at that time, about 1936, wasn't it? I mean, that, you wore a pressure suit or a diver's suit. Ah, uh, later on, with a yeah. monoplane. The monoplane, oh, yes. yeah. Yes. In the absence of a pressure cabin, mm. uh, he used a, a pressure suit instead. Mm. Same effect. What, what yeah. is the maximum altitude you, you, you can fly to without, without the need for pressurization, without the need for sort of supplemental pressure to enable you to breathe? I think you're almost on the limit there, aren't you? Well, when when I flew the Welkin, getting very hard to remember the, the heights one went to. I thought it was about 40,000 feet, needs checking. But I turned off the uh, pressurization there in order to see the effect of um, a bullet hole in the uh, system. And uh, th there was no particular problem. Uh, one had ample time to push the nose down to get to a lower altitude and turn the oxygen fully up. But there are specific times, I've written several articles on this actually, there's another one I could find for you, mm. on the um, uh, psychological problems of um, high altitude flying. Mm. I guess that's right now. This is something, of course, they, they, they a few put moments. service pilots through now in the decompression. Oh, yes, oh yes, and, um, surely. And, yeah. and watch it. During, yeah. during the, the course of this exercise on, on the Everest expedition machine, I mean, did you actually meet Lady Houston? No. I believe no. she was quite a character. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, she was. No, I knew all the others, of course, mm. and uh, recently have been in touch with the 
Duke of Hamilton, mm-hmm. uh, Clydesdale's son, uh, they were going to make a film of the uh, uh, Everest effort, but I think the whole thing has collapsed. Can, can you tell me a bit more of your experiences now on, on the pterodactyl? Yes. Uh, l- let me yes. just uh, perhaps cut in. It may, mm. it may be of interest. Mm. Um, test flying originally by the standard service pilot um, was not very scientific. He was able to do a level run and um, uh, record the speed. It was substantially level. Everyone uh, forgot the effect of thermals, or they didn't didn't know about it, but that made two or three miles an hour difference in speed at times. Mm. And uh, people certainly hadn't any great uh, knowledge of um, control alteration. And I, I think it was during the uh, late 20s and through the 30s that designers and pilots alike began to understand that uh, aircraft, uh, which were, say, unstable, um, could be made to fly in a stable fashion. Um, and that, uh, that it was not entirely due to lack of lever arm for the tail or size of tail, but um, there was idiosyncratic movement of the elevator itself. Uh, and uh, that um, that it could be corrected by altering shapes of balances and contours of the, of the surface. And uh, the same applies to uh, ailerons. So it was really uh, very closely linked to wind tunnel work. And uh, I think I was particularly helped there because of my earlier experience with Handley Page when we were developing slot and flap systems for his machines. Earlier still, in the First World War, when an aeroplane was flown, it was either all right or no good. And it was crap if it was no good, <laughs> with very little attempt to, to do anything to it. No one knew the answers. And increasingly we began to measure things. Uh, free-flying angles of, of controls in flight, um, force recorders for uh, uh, the control column movements, uh, a, a sprung uh, stick which registered on the dial, the um, pounds take to distort it in any particular direction. Or you could go a long way with just an ordinary spring balance in doing these things. Phenomena like flutter and so on, I mean, was that well detected in a wind tunnel? Flutter was first experienced and people didn't know really what what happened. There was a violent shake and uh, wings came off of various machines like Gloucester Greaves and uh, fighters of that ilk which had been diving fast. But tremendous research was done at Farnborough, and I, I have a great appreciation of all the, all the work that was uh, done by the RAE on these particular problems, both in the wind tunnel and in the uh, free flight uh, testing. The whole thing you know, came al- along uh, in uh, a steadily increasing development of, of uh, complexity, and in the aircraft industry, we tagged along behind the Farnborough people, 
but um, uh, discussing all sorts of problems uh, with them. And I think there was a tremendous combined effort between the government-instituted research people and the aircraft designers themselves. I think the real problem with the Air Ministry was that so many of the officials there were, were not um, up to date. We're not looking ahead in the same way that many aircraft designers were. They were more interested in implementing the uh, regulations and uh, ensuring that the proper equipment was uh, fitted to comply with the Director of Operational Requirements. Uh, they had a sort of customer's view uh, uh, rearwards in, That's in right. how their existing yeah. products were operating, right. but not yeah. the vision to look ahead. Uh, very largely, mm. yeah. And, and all these um, scientific explorations, of course, were done in those days without the help that the modern guys have of telemetry, for instance. Oh, yes. You know, multi-channel data transmission yeah. and computers. Oh, yeah. and so Nothing, not even a radio set. I mean, this was your notepad on your knee, I suppose. Yes. Uh, situation. Uh, yes. I also had, a, in those days, a very good memory. And I can remember times and heights pretty accurately. <laughs> On, the, on ordinary production tests. So now, you mentioned earlier on you were associated with, was it Professor Hill? Yes. At Farnborough on the Pterodactyl? No, not at Farnborough. He became a member of Westland. Yeah. He mm. built his first machine as a private venture with the aid of a, a, a subsidy. And um, Westland, Bruce, uh, Robert Bruce is the man who ran the show, a marvellous fellow. I don't think they make people quite like him with equal ability of business and, and uh, techniques. A, a figure who uh, really was a father figure and yet controlled people very rigorously. He and Hill had a, a, a mutual outlook, mutual minds. Uh, they were both MAs, uh, so they'd had this, uh, a similar background except that Hill was a, a pilot. So. For a short time, I actually worked in the drawing office on the uh, design of the uh, controllers, the movable tips, which the machine had. And uh, I remember being absolutely terrified, having made my first real design that was going to be used. Uh, it comprised a tapered uh, uh, spar, a circular uh, tube, of, uh, which was tapered and built up by rivets. And I went through the calculations for the bearing strength of those rivets, I should think, 20 times before I dared submit the thing to the chief stressman. And uh, he appraised it, he looked at it. He said, well, uh, if it looks all right, laddie, it generally is, you know. And he didn't even check the stressing. <laughs> which really shook me. So a treasured picture has been uh, this controller which I designed. Before that, uh, I was a sort of odd job man for a while and devising methods of, of um, testing things. Um, petrol tanks uh, for vibration in which I made a huge wooden frame uh, which carried the tank, far too strong for the tank, and then connected the thing to one of the tinsmith's uh, automatic hammers that went up and down. No relation to what the real vibration was, but we just shook it and shook it until something broke. And as it lasted, exiles, which were 
accepted as satisfactory, and that was regarded as a pretty good test. But ultimately, I mean, in your experience, you know, with your chief dressman on the pterodactyl, I mean, were you at that time then going to have, have to go and fly? No, I um, hadn't quite got... Well, I... Got yes, in this sense, yes, sure. Mm. Because I, I was uh, the observer, mm. and uh, my job was to supplement the, uh, shall I say, the flying, or the outlook, of the very dashing uh, test pilot we had then, which who was, was more socially uh, conscious than, than technically conscious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> was a, a chap called Lewis Padgett, mm -hmm. tall chap of the monocle, who really was the key to, to um, uh, my flying. Um, Keep as a, a test pilot and uh, also a university man, uh, was the manager who was prepared to take the risk of me flying after he'd seen me dashing around with Bristol fighters. But it was Lewis Paget uh, who uh, really passed me out for um, flying there. Um, he, when I uh, flew the Wapiti, there was no dual control. He just bravely stood in the back and uh, watched me take off and fly around and, uh, and uh, land and got out and said, OK. And uh, that was it. I was a Wapiti pilot from <laughs> that point on. There was nothing he could have reached if you'd done no, something wrong. Nothing. And we had no parachutes in those days. Uh, so I thought, pretty brave man. And in the same way with the three engine machines, uh, the Wessex, uh, when I was the uh, civil aircraft manager, uh, he just said, get in, there was no dual control, want you to fly this, and uh, just stood by, uh, by my side. Well, I did a, a circuit. First time I'd ever flown, uh, handled a, a multi-engine machine. And uh, he was very encouraging in all these things. So there was a point then that you took over the pterodactyl program, was there? From no, not until, not until uh, he'd had his crash and had retired, and then the whole lot was thrown at me. And uh, I, I'd merely... Uh, in the side-by-side -side, um, pterodactyl we had, um, put my hand across and tried the controls and found how extraordinarily touchy it was. Uh, Paget had, was, um, had very light hands for flying. He was a horseman, uh, which was regarded as uh, one of the old requirements in aptitude. Um, and I thought, what a touchy beast he was. And after I'd been given the job of uh, chief pilot, I flew the uh, three-seater uh, pterodactyl four, a push-up machine, and I was appalled at the first takeoff. She just bounced up, down, up, down, and uh, it was only awesome. Oh, and dropped a wing, and I thought, gosh, if test pilot isn't going to be this. I'm no good at it, uh, but one very quickly acclimatizes to these things, and uh, I, I found that if you held the controls steady rather than try to control the machine, it was all right. But uh, she was um, neutrally stable only, and very difficult. 
Because she had this tremendously short longitudinal That's right. axis. She was heavy laterally yeah. and um, touchy fore and aft. Mm. Mm. And any bump on, on the aerodrome would tend to throw her up at a steep angle. Mm. And in fact, to go back to Openshaw, the first pilot with them, whom I flew in 25 and 26, and flying the original pterodactyl, he hit a slight bump and it went straight up, dropped a wing and, and piled up completely. It was the Mark IV pterodactyl that had the, what we now call variable sweep, didn't it? You could control That's the right. position of yes, the wing. Yes. That was very revolutionary, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Um, there was, uh, in effect, a gigantic turnbuckle between the um, front spars at the, at the cabin, which you wound a little thing round, rather like the ordinary tail trimmer on a machine instead of which it moved the uh, CP of the wing slightly forward or slightly aft. So it was in fact a trim control? Trim control. It was sufficiently powerful for one to just be able to flatten out, almost do a landing without touching the stick. Not that it was a very safe manoeuvre. <laughs> what was the poten potential of this machine? You know, it was an unconventional design. Um, did it have advantages that the industry were interested in? Or? Oh yes. There were, first of all, it, it, it was thought to have rather lower drag than a, a conventional aeroplane because you'd eliminated the tail. It's a little questionable because, it, in effect, you were really putting the tail on the um, tip of the wings. But Hill was very quick to show them that the machine could be used as a fighter with a complete uh, field of fire in front like the old pusher FEs and the reverse if you like to drive from the front you could have a complete field of fire behind. There were also alleged to be advantages uh, as a seaplane. I, I was not very convinced of that because the, the wingtips came pretty low to the sea and I, I, merely, I thought that there were t two points of danger instead of one um, by trading those things there. But uh, it made a nice short hull flying boat, actually, in, in, in appearance. And again, uh, as an airliner, there was every uh, expectation of eventually uh, having the passengers in the wing. And a, a lot of, uh, of uh, design work was done on this. And a bit like the, like the Havilland thoughts when they built the 108. I mean, that was going to develop into an airliner. Well, yes, yes, except that we were 10 years Mm -hmm. earlier. And uh, the all uh, wing, swept back wing, uh, passenger carrier is of course one of the modern projects again. The thing has gone full circle. Mm -hmm. But as a fighter it would have had a very, far too slow a rate of roll, wouldn't it, with that huge span length ratio? Well, uh, the Pterodactyl 5, which was the first effort at making a complete field of fire behind, um, matched the Hawker, Hind, and Hart um, mm -hmm. version. And we were somewhat faster than that machine. And the lateral control wasn't bad in the end. The final thing that um, killed the machine, I suppose, was um, a new designer came in. Hill left, and the new designer didn't want to finish the um, uh, another man's work. 
One of the problems that we came up against was that of um, now termed aeroelasticity. Uh, in other words, torsional weakness of wings. Mm. And this happened with a pterodactyl. Um, the diving speed in the end was limited by the amount the wings were twisting upwards. I had the stick really on the dashboard in a dive and the whole thing was just going up in the opposite direction and one was in static conditions. That had happened in the same way with the PV-7, a high-wing torpedo monoplane we made. You could visibly, as I applied aileron, you could visibly see the wings going like this. Chief designer wouldn't believe it. So uh, I, uh, Bruce, the managing director, said to him, well, Davenport, you'd better go up and, and uh, have a look. Just what I was going to suggest, sir, said Davenport, whose last <laughs> effort would have been to go flying like that. So I took him up, and he was in the back end of the machine watching, and I was talking down the speaking tube, and I said, now, here you are, Arthur. Can you see it just beginning to uh, go up at the trailing edge? And he said no. So I said, well, I'll, I'll go a bit faster and, and plow a little more. So I redid the test, you see. And suddenly I heard down the telephone, Christ, Christ, help, stop, you have the wings off. <laughs> and I think that that perhaps uh, did strain the wings coupled with the fact that I lost a wheel with that machine and uh, had um, a rather scrapey landing with the, uh, on the protruding axle and uh, eventually the wing did come off. And you had to hop out? And I had to hop. And that was, that was the first exit from a, a cabin machine. But uh, I, I couldn't open the patented emergency exit. It was a cantilever sliding roof which went into a groove in the windscreen and under the air load it had just sucked up so tightly under the groove that there was no budging it at all. But luckily being short I was able to get out of the side window. But uh, anyone of more, of greater stature would have had it. Because there weren't such things as, as box structures that you get in modern aircraft were there? Well, you've got a you know, machine box forming the central structure of the wing to avoid that kind of twisting. Well, no, uh, but um, it was a triangulated uh, structure. You could do it with a pyramid of tubes, you see. You're quite right. First, uh, it was a plain drag structure in, of um, struts separating the two spars. But after this twisting, we then triangulated, bought a pyramid, made it pyramidal, rather, which effectively looked after the... Uh, twisting. It had metal box spars actually, uh, but of course they were not the single spar you're um, thinking of, the integrated mm. um, main spar. Now was the, the PV-7 a sort of um, direct ancestor of the Lysander? Did well, it have any sort of connection with it? Uh, only that uh, Davenport had always favoured high wingers and therefore we got the sequence of the Widgeon 1 uh, with the lozenge-shaped wings and then the uh, Widgeon 3, which was a, a, a rectangular conventional wing, but a parasol. 
uh, we made the Witch Bomber, which was a 60-foot high-wing monoplane. And that was partly because of the efficiency of a monoplane compared with the biplane, which our com competitors were doing to the same specification. But also, it, it was a reasonably easy way of um, having a, a completely open underside to the fuselage, apart from doors, for bombs towage. And the loads were taken round through the uh, wing structure and undercarriage um, uh, structure uh, to give the open space. Uh, PV-7 was then, I think, a logical development of, of the uh, witch and the um, Wessex monoplanes. It was just Western thought high-wing monoplanes were good. Mm. Pterodactyls the same. The Lysander just followed the conventional practice, particularly as uh, maximum forward and downward view was one of the requirements. So after our experience with the F-7 fighter biplane, in which there was shaft drive from an engine amidships, and the pilot sat in, fr in front of the wings, which gave them absolutely marvellous all-round view. So the same thing was applied to the uh, Lysander. What were the ingredients to the success of the Lysander? I mean, was it, was it short field performance, essentially? Or? Oh, I think essentially the short field um, performance. It was structurally novel, but I don't think that really contributed greatly to it. Um, and there were such little things which now seem ridiculous as ease of putting equipment within the fuselage. You merely took off a complete side panel, fabric-covered side panel of the fuselage. And uh, that sort of access to a machine's innards was regarded as much more important than a beautifully streamlined monocoque fuselage where you couldn't even send a small boy down the bottom to go sort of do things. And I think the Air Force were completely on the wrong track largely because this was a, a, a strongly uh, vented view by the chief engineer at Martlesham, um, a chap called McKenna, and he was a real toughy boy who looked after the maintenance. What, what were the features of the wing that gave it this performance? It had, had leading edge slats. Well, you had this completely leading edge slat and, and the flaps being automatically pulled down it was a good transition method before pilots had to press buttons or move levers to go and get flaps down. Uh, they hadn't to bother about it. It was more like the old conventional biplane. So when the flap came down automatically with yes, the flap? Yes, mm. yes. But you had the uh, things like reverse pitch or anything like that to pull up? No. Short in a field? No. But uh, it was a pretty high lift coefficient with the slots fully out. It was really foreshadowing the uh, modern airliner with the leading edge slats and, and um, very large uh, high lift flaps, slotted flaps. And it certainly had this ability, particularly in the early stages before they began to add still more load, of uh, landing and taking off from a football pitch. So that was better than the um, average contemporary biplane. And it was a fairly robust machine, wasn't it? it? It was um, tough. It was the, uh, a very early example of the use of extrusions, uh, of which the most uh, prominent item, I suppose, was the hairpin undercarriage, which was an 
a, a square box of um, extruded diurnal, mm. about uh, four inches by four. Mm. Mm. And uh, its simplicity with a, a, a doughty wheel, internally sprung wheel, of course it was low drag, and uh, there was therefore no necessity to go and make a retracting undercarriage, though originally the machine was designed with a stub wing and retracting mm -hmm. undercarriage. Mm -hmm. And it was an easy machine to handle from the service point Well, it, it was a very safe machine in many ways until one came to the overshoot. To trim on the glide, a lot of negative tail had to be wound on. Mm. And if the landing was balked and you opened up, the machine stood on, on its tail. You, you couldn't wind off the enormous number of turns of the tailplane quickly enough, and there were a number of crashes because of this. But the great thing was to open up to only half throttle, and you could then hold the change of trim with a stick and strongly held forward, and uh, it gave you time to wind off the tail, and then you could open up fully. There's a lot of historical affection towards that. Oh, yes, well, you see, it was a good old clumber, Jay. It was not difficult in any way to fly. It had quite a brisk performance. And uh, to those who became experts, you could uh, set the engine at a predetermined revs, which gave you a, a rate of descent of um, something like five feet a second. And you, you could just wait, and the machine would touch down tail first, all you had to do was throttle back. Mm. So in, in misty weather you could land right, right, or even through clouds tall like that, and wait till the ground hit you, gently. George really gave the first clues to all of us in the British aircraft industry after he'd been to America and talked to the people who'd uh, had problems with high-speed dives and who also told him about the number of chaps who'd been killed in, in the high-speed dives mysteriously. Why did it happen? For, for the first time George adequately described the uh, change of trims that one got and I have got the note somewhere. He sent it to every test pilot in this country to warn them um, saying that one should not try and trim out the change of trim during the dive, but hold everything as it was, even though it felt absolutely appalling. And when the machine got to um, lower altitudes with denser air, 10,000 feet or so, they would probably find that uh, recovery was uh, fairly normal. I thought there was a great effort to have, uh, have done that and, and uh, warned us all, uh, because I'd already experienced this sort of thing with a whirlwind. After a certain speed, perhaps 360 indicated, I could feel the machine pulling harder and harder down, and uh, you felt you were going to do a bunt in the end. And we did an awful lot of work on this, discovering in, in the end that there were two problems. One, the elevator was changing its um, uh, normal flying position, and two, that there was this interference between fin and tail plane, which was reducing, altering the elevator flow. And three, that anyhow, there was a, a, a change of trim, which we could only surmise about, uh, probably due to speed. And I had to feed my way 
just as Jaeger did, incrementally, five miles uh, an hour at a time, and just see how much worse uh, the change of trim was, how, how uh, greater the pull was on, on, on the stick for recovery. But in the end, I did set a limit for that uh, machine, perhaps it was 400 indicated, or maybe 450, at which I felt anything further and you won't be able to pull back and, and get out of the dive. Now, we hit this again with the Welkin, which had a thick wing. It was a, a 65 foot, 70 foot um, cantilever um, uh, with a wing which could have been a, a, a foot or more deep, oh it must have been, at the root. And uh, there I found at a certain speed in dead calm air, getting a little jerk like going over cobblestones, which I described to uh, um, Roe, uh, who was then the uh, <laughs> director of uh, uh, research, uh, as, as a sort of cobblestone motion. And uh, th this again was an early expression of the Mark effect. And I, th I rather think this was found in the early stages with the Concorde. The, the first signal was a slight sort of shaking which then, as you increase speed, actually stabilised. But I also had the wings flapping up and down, and they were going, I think, three feet at the tips at least. It was like a bird flying. This is on the Welkin? On the Welkin. Mm. And it, it was the waggling wingtips which uh, put the limit on the diving speed for that machine. A little faster, and I felt, whoop, they had gone off. Mm. Mm. <laughs> it uh, was not good. This was the BF-109, was it? Yes. Yeah. If I can find this note on, on Georgie Bullman, mm. I, I will, because I, I think it was a, one of the historic uh, notes. Controls to electrical controls, which the Air Force fiercely resisted to start with, and then, of course, hydraulics for one purpose and another. Uh, but all, your, all the machines you flew were cable controlled, or did you have some hydraulic control ones? Uh, Hydraulics, no, I can't think how, and the mandatory six turns. And of course, they quite frequently gave problems, uh, until, in fact, they devised the vertical spinning tunnel at Farnborough, where you had a little model of the right inertia sitting on an air jet with automatic controls, which clicked for recovery. And that, that was very helpful. But y you could um, have problems in a a machine which might have been spun scores and hundreds of times, as I did one day with the uh, Wapiti. And it was fitted with an experimental um, Leitner-Watts uh, steel, I think, bladed propeller, which was very heavy. So the machine had to be ballasted to counteract. And no one realised that the effect of changing the inertia, longitudinal inertia, might have a big bearing on the spin characteristics. So I lightly started a spin, and at six turns, uh, reverse controls to come out, and just nothing happened. And it, it went on for, I think it was 15 turns, and I was just hauling myself out. And as I sort of rose slightly in the cockpit, the whole thing stopped. We were in an ordinary dive, and recovery. 
So maybe the change of flow over the uh, over the elevators must have done something. But after that, our pundits got onto this business of uh, inertias, and before I spun the uh, pterodactyls, uh, this was very carefully worked out, and there were proper relationships between uh, 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 lateral and um, uh, longitudinal inertias, which one must comply with for a reasonable uh, recovery. But all this was step-by-step development. Can you tell me a little bit about the sort of the move now from the Lysander to the, to the, to the whirlwind? Because it was a di- different type of machine altogether, wasn't it? I mean, it was, it was Petter is, was technical director by this time? Yes, right? yes. The there was sort of an unhappy period. No one was very keen to work under a, a youngster who'd only been the assistant to the managing director, though he had a good degree, and uh, he certainly was very, very bright, and was very determined to make his mark, which I think had something to do with the father-son relationship, because Dad was a... Dad was Ernest, uh, was he? Yes, Sir Ernest Petter, and he was a very dominating type. I liked him, but uh, he could be very, very difficult. Teddy tried for several specifications before he was accepted for the Lysander, where he'd been very largely backed by Roy Fedden, because he was going to use Fedden's engines, and Fedden was impressed with the way uh, Petter talked to him technically. So uh, having started the Lizzie, the, the Air Ministry specs began to flow in for tendering. The uh, uh, whirlwind fighter, forgotten the spec, appealed to him, he began to exercise uh, further advanced ideas in uh, using uh, uh, magnesium alloy, for instance, and um, exacter controls wherever possible. Also rather rashly pushed the exhaust pipe through the uh, petrol tank on each wing, refused to listen to either Davenport or I with warnings that if there was a bullets into that tank, it was the end of that pilot. Uh, he he had no very great regard for people who flew. <laughs> he was much more interested in, in, in solving the techniques in as often uh, in as novel a way as possible. So uh, I think that um, as a fighting machine it just evolved rationally uh, in accordance with his uh, specification requirement with problems as, as to uh, gun feed uh, with four big cannon in the nose like that, all of which he enjoyed, I think, as a crossword puzzle. But again, we had the uh, fully slatted, uh, the uh, slatted wing to start with. It was also the first application of the Fowler flap, a big area flap, such as those, um, again, used... Uh, these days in much more advanced form. Against the advice of Davenport he went for this small Rolls-Royce engine because he felt that low drag was the uh, ultimate target and he overlooked the fact that uh, it was unlikely to uh, have much, the engine have much development and that of course in the end did um, preclude uh, further uh, use of, of the whirlwind. Big engines were in full production, 
and roles didn't want to be bothered with the with the peregrine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did it have a much smaller cross-sectional area than the Merlin then? Oh yes, oh. Oh, very considerably. Yeah. It, it was also steam cooled, and that gave enormous trouble. Was it steam cooled? Yes. As opposed to liquid cooled. Yes. And by the time one had got to the um, takeoff point, clouds of steam were pouring out initially. I, I've never uh, heard of a steam cooled engine before. Yes. Yes. What is the how is the principle different from a liquid cooled engine then? Well, I, I think you, you can pass anything around an engine and, and you can add heat to it within certain limits and it, it, it conveys it away again and steam was compact, uh, apparently requiring smaller um, heat exchangers. I, I, I've forgotten the techniques of, uh, of all the cooling stuff, but again, it took a long time to develop before we got something which, which uh, squadrons could reasonably use. And it was also, uh, it remained a source of um, criticism for the machine. Mm. But in uh, due course, of course, the inevitable happened. The uh, ducting round the exhaust pipe failed, and the exhaust pipe then burnt right through the aileron push rod on the starboard side, and the aileron flopped up at full lock. Uh, but luckily, the port one was still operable, so one had to set that also to full lock, but uh, it felt a bit of a predicament with a highly laden fighter of, 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 of that time. But I, I'd actually had, had a very similar thing with the Widgeon many years earlier, and of course I had it again subsequently with the Wyvern, only that was worse, mm. because the loading was still higher. But with the Wyvern, I, I uh, was completing a circuit to uh, come in for finals, which I'd extended over Pete's house, where Susie and her mother uh, were in the garden. And just as I passed them, suddenly the machine, at 500 feet about, just turned completely upside down. And it was an, an inverted dive like that. Puzzle, what does Pilot do? <laughs> he pushes the stick forward and tries to flick roll back again. But by that time I was literally just over the chimney pots, and uh, again, it was the same technique up with the uh, port aileron, but by golly, I was very slow and on the edge of the stall, and with a very high wing loading for those days, so I climbed to a reasonable height to parachute down, and then thought, now I can make it, it's all right if I don't hit a bump coming in, and uh, it was a perfectly normal landing. What actually caused you to but, lose uh, that aileron? A failure of uh, one of the sockets on the uh, push rod system. Uh, you know, there they were a, a sequence of, of rods to take into, um, uh, allow for the bending of the wing under, under load. And one of them just sheared. You had a lot of problems on the line? Mainly the gearbox, wasn't it? I don't think there were anything more really than the ordinary problems. It fulfilled its specification in the end. Yes, mm. yes. You know, I don't, just don't recollect I can read it all the, the whole anyway. story of, mm. The, uh, mm. of that machine. But um, what I do recall is the superb views. Yes. I mean, there it was really marvellous to be mm. up at those great heights. And 
You've had to do a forced landing once, you told me, when you, when you had a camshaft chair on the Eagle. Yes. There happened to be an aerodrome in the Sydney, somewhere in the Midlands. Mm. And I had to get on regardless with uh, one, only one engine. And uh, it happened to be crosswind with all the other aircraft <laughs> still operational. The controller hadn't seen me, my radio hadn't worked. And uh, when I went up to the tower, you know, there was a furious controller there. <laughs> uh, what did I mean by landing crosswind? With a, and I said, have you ever tried to land a single-engine machine in emergency? And why weren't you keeping a proper lookout anyhow? Your radio wasn't the, working then, and you couldn't have contacted it. Oh, the radio was always um, poor. Mm. Uh, we didn't get radio until latish in the war. This wasn't on the Wyvern then, this particular instance? It was a uh, whirlwind, was it, John? Uh, no, this was a Welkin then. Oh, it was a Welkin, yeah. yes. Yeah. Oh, well, look, there were forced landings with nearly every machine. Yeah. Because the, the problem with development is that you're developing an engine simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Probably no one's ever flown it. Mm. And in the case of the Wyvern, the uh, Eagle engine had, um, had, I think, no air testing at all. So there were the inevitable teething troubles, including the uh, complete uh, failure of the magneto drive, and that caused a forced landing from a pretty considerable height, dead engine. Luckily, knowing the country pretty well, I, I was able to spot Warmwell, which was uh, closed down mm -hmm. at that time. Just had a few feet in hand to go over the mm -hmm. hangars there, landed quite happily. Only to, to be told when the uh, rescue team came along that uh, they'd hit an obstruction. And when they'd walked a little further, they found that the whole thing was lined with obstruction uh, stones. And I'd just have to have gone between them. <laughs> Luck. You mentioned Teddy Petter's involvement. Um on the whirlwind. I mean, he went on to design the Canberra, for instance, didn't he? Well, the Canberra was started at Westland, and uh, we were doing two aeroplanes uh, at the same time, the uh, twin-engine bomber and the Wyvern. And at that time, relations between Teddy and uh, Mansforth got to a peak, and uh, he, he left. But... Um, Mansforth allowed him to take the drawings of, the, of this machine. We built a complete mock-up of it um, with him as an aid to getting another job. But our version had the engines within the fuselage. Just well, then he went to English Electric, of course. And yes. Going on from there. Yeah. Yes. But it, it was the same uh, wing plan, same size, same specification, of course. Mm. Only uh, someone had rationalised him into putting the power plants on the wing. It turned out to be a very successful aeroplane. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. And then he went well, on to design the NAT, of course, didn't he? The, yes. And the, the midge and the NAT. Yes, yes. 